welcome to another chapter of In The Keep Podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. This show is all about the world of first-person shooters, their legacies, their lineage, and the people who keep that world turning. It is the will of the drowned god, Cathala, that our communities band together to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Alright, this is a pretty long episode, so I'll try to keep the intro relatively short this time. I just want to go ahead and introduce our guest. His name is Nate Behrens. He is incredible. This guy is absolutely kicking ass out there. As an indie developer, he is the game dev professor at Lawrence Tech in Michigan. He is also an absolutely incredible designer. He's made a... Sagebrush, which we're going to talk about like in depth. It's a really, really great narrative driven kind of walking simulator first person game that I, I think you'll really enjoy, especially if you like cults because there's a lot of cult talk in, uh, in this episode. And also his upcoming game, Effigy, which is a you know, straight up retro shooter with some, uh, you know, Souls, Metroidvania style game play that I think that you'll, uh, you'll really enjoy and you should definitely check it out the demo is available on his itch.io page and it's well worth your time you can also check out my review of it if you just want to get it over with uh for now music that you're hearing right now is provided by the amazing amorpher he is my favorite dark ambient composer if you're looking for somebody to do a score for your game that's uh dark and ambient and fucked up and and awesome all at the same time you should pay Amorpher 100 squintillion dollars to do your soundtrack. I'm just saying, but whenever this track is over, we'll be in the keep with Nate Barons. I'm Nate Barons. Um, I'm an indie developer. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's kind of just a side thing for me. Uh, but I've been at it for a few years now. Um, my first real release of any note was uh, a game called Sagebrush, which was a first-person narrative uh, adventure game about exploring like a cult compound. Um, people seem to like it all right, so I'm going to keep making more. Um, currently working on uh, a couple projects. So uh, there's uh, a small little like side project that's like uh, it's an alien photography game. It's kind of Pokemon Snap ish. Um, and uh, I'm working with uh, a really really talented uh, developer uh, who's doing the writing for it, Zelvier Nelson Jr., who worked on. Uh, uh, he's working on the Dog Airport game. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, uh, the Dreadx collection too. That's Dreadx really collection. Yep, yep. Yeah. So he's 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 dipping his toes into the horror uh, world now. Uh, he worked on Hypnospace Outlaw. He's kind of worked on everything. He's a machine. Um, but yeah, 
Um, and then my kind of long-term project and probably the one that's most relevant to <laughs> your audience at the moment is, uh, is Effigy, which is a retro FPS that I've been working on for about a year now, a um, little over a year. Uh, that is what if Quake, but Metroid, I don't know. Um, we can get into that more. It's that's reductive, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's an interconnected kind of take on the, uh, the retro FPS kind of pacing and of combat, but, but, but the more with an emphasis on exploration and this kind of mysterious world. And, uh, yeah. So, so you said there's like it, that effigy is like more tailored to my audience and everything. And I, I keep running into this problem where like, I, I declare a theme of this podcast. Like it's, yeah, first, yeah. it's retro. It's, and then I find something else that I'm like, Oh, but I really like this. And then I end up having like air on. So I, yeah. I like sagebrush enough that you would have been on just for that. But then when you, I, I didn't even know about effigy when I invited you on the show. That's right. And I fell in love with it. We'll talk about it, all that stuff. And as we get sure. going, but God, effigy is so cool. But so the, where I wanted to kind of get started is you already mentioned that you uh, worked at the the college, Lawrence Tech, right? You're the developer, like game developer professor there. Is that true? So, no. So there's actually a couple things. So I work, okay. I work for two different schools. Um, so yeah, my, my day job, day job is completely non-game related. Um, okay. I'm, I'm a video producer at a local community college, um, basically help get classes like put online, um, and create like video content for those classes and that kind of thing. Um, and, um, that's, I've been at that for a few years. My background is in video production and film. Um, Mm -hmm. not, I don't have any sort of like CS background or game design background formally anyway. Um, but then, uh, after Sagebrush and as it came out and and kind of as I became more of a more integrated into the local like Michigan uh, game development community, I uh, a friend of mine who who runs the game they call it the game art but it's really game art game production game design all of that wrapped into one that program at Lawrence Tech which is in Southfield Michigan and he invited me to teach uh, a game design class there so. That's that's kind of job three if you count all of this. It's just a job. Um, so that that that's been really cool. So um, I had a bit of imposter syndrome going in, but it turned out, you know, to be a really really cool experience to teach game design. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's that's continuing. That's ongoing. So um, let's kind of start a little earlier and then work our way up to that. So you- sure this has always just kind of been like a side thing for you, but when did you kind of first develop an interest in gaming and programming? So, I mean, you can go back to like notebooks when I was six and I had, you know, uh, little platformer levels and stuff drawn out or like I was designing characters and RPG maps and that kind of stuff. Um, But I, for a long time, I didn't think I had the like artistic or technical like acumen for it. You know, I, um, I took some computer science in, in high school and kind of struggled with it. Um, we had like a C++ programming class and uh, at least compared, I did okay, but at least compared to pretty much all of my friends and stuff in the class, I yeah. lagged behind. So I was kind of like, oh, I guess that's not, it's not for me. You know, um, I was doing a lot better in, 
uh, again, we had we actually had like an AV class, so I was doing video production there um, and creative writing and that kind of stuff. So I was like, all right, I'll go in that direction. Uh, so in college, I didn't even consider like taking any courses. But on the side, like I was always into games. I've been in games my entire life. I've been like two indie games. Um, but and I, I thought, well, okay, I'm better at writing. Maybe I can be a critic. Maybe I can, you know, do reviews. I can, you know. And um, so I actually, in college, started writing uh, kind of on a volunteer basis reviews for AdventureGamers.com, which is, um, you know, it's a niche site for uh, adventure games uh, that's been around for, God, it's been like 20 years. Um, And God, I've been writing for it for half of that, (laughs) something like that. It's been a while. Uh, And uh, that was really cool. That That was a really fun experience. Uh, and then I kind of took that and I was like, well, maybe I can also do, maybe I, uh, it was kind of after game makers toolkit and like the, the new YouTube wave of, uh, video commentary and video essays were coming out. I was like, maybe I can do that. Um, so I made a few essays, uh, like video essays and, and like short form documentaries on YouTube under the name Ludodrum. And a couple of them, you know, took off. They did pretty good numbers and everything. Um, and people seem to really like them. I, I, it was all just stuff I wanted to talk about. So I talked a lot about, I, I did a, a video on the history of um, the Deus Ex franchise. Uh, I did one on the Mist series, which has always been kind of close to my heart. Um, did one on Panzer Dragoon. Uh, and then, but what I realized is the more I was making videos about games, the more I just really wanted to make them. Yeah. Um, and I had tried a few times. Um, I played around with game maker. I played around with RPG maker. Um, you know, again, like in elementary school, I made some like, I don't know if you know what HyperCard is, but it was like a, um, on an older, on older Macs, it was basically kind of like a precursor to PowerPoint. Um, and it allowed you to string together these images with hotspots and that kind of stuff. So I made a little like mist clone in HyperCard when I was like eight. It was terrible. Um, but yeah, uh, my whole life, I kind of would like, go, you know, uh, let's try making a game or let's try learning some programming and then bounce off of it and go, oh, this is too hard. Or this isn't for me. I, I'm not good enough. But a couple things kind of happened towards my my late 20s. I'm, you know, I'm in my early 30s now, 33. Um, so I, first of all, the tools became more accessible. You know, Unity, uh, Unreal, like all of that became more accessible. So I didn't have to learn about transformation matrices and you know high level calculus and and stuff to you know there's still math but it's not it's it's not the super high level john carmack <laughs> tier stuff that right. you don't need to know that stuff to uh you know it, it, a passing familiarity is enough to get by even developing 3d games these days um and so the tools became more accessible i, I had access to tools where i didn't have to start from square one i could start from square 10. I don't know how many squares there are, but it was a little further along. And then the other thing was through my day job, uh, I working on these college courses, I ended up working with an instructor on a Java class and in helping him like build these videos and stuff, I was basically learning alongside it and it clicked with me for once. Like after, after years of bouncing off of it, it clicked with me finally. And I was like, I basically took the class. Then I did formally take the class. Um, that I had helped build. It's a little weird, but, and after God, I close to 10 years of 
trying and then kind of hitting wall and giving up and going, eh, I guess that's not my, my direction. It finally clicked and I was like able to make things happen in unity. And so then I just started going for it. I was like, all right, I'm going to, at this point it was still totally just a hobby side thing. And I didn't expect anyone to even play my stuff, but I was like, well, I'm having fun. So then I made the rookie mistake that I think a lot of developers make and immediately jumped into trying to make my uh, dream game. Which was like this cyberpunk stealth immersive sim, like, you know, basically kind of like a Deus Ex thing, but or like, but more, more stealth focused even than Deus Ex. And, but I was like, don't worry, though, it'll have a low poly art style. So it'll be totally doable in, you know, a couple of years. And I worked on it for a few months. And actually, you know, I mean, it pushed everything I was doing on it was something I was doing for the first time and, and learning more or less from scratch. I'd made some smaller some much, much smaller games uh, that never even really got seen publicly. Um, but I kind of got a big head and I was like, I want to make this awesome stealth game. And, and then after a few months of that, I was like, oh, this is going to take like five years, <laughs> you know, six years. And even when it comes out, it may be god awful. Maybe that's not a good first kind of uh, commercial product <laughs> or something like that. Uh, maybe Maybe this is a bad idea. So I put a pin in that and who knows, maybe I'll go back to it sometime. But, um, and I, I specifically was like, I need to scale down and do something that plays into my strengths. Cause I'm still, you know, not a great programmer. I'm fine. I can get things done, but you know, it's not, it's not my absolute strength. Um, and you know, my strengths are more, I think I'm pretty good at crafting atmosphere and I was, and I was confident in my writing ability. And so I was like, all right, let's do something where I, I can kind of mitigate my weaknesses, play into my strengths. And that through that, I, I kind of it, it just became clear. I was going to basically make a walking sim. And so I was like, all right, there can't be any, it needs to be a small environment and there can't be anybody there. So everybody's dead. Okay. You know, and so then uh, at the same time, I was also just, I was interested in, I was getting interested in cults uh, through stuff I was reading. I can get into that more, but um, yeah, like Sagebrush basically was the product of me going, okay, can't have characters, can't have like cool mechanics um, because I don't know how to make them. Uh, Basically can have a bunch of blocky buildings and you find notes. And stuff like that. Um, and maybe I, I like doing lighting, so I'll play around with the lighting. You know, like I was like, all right, here are the things I can do. What can I build a game around? And Sagebrush was the product of that. And yeah, it kind of it grew a little from the initial concept, but not much. Uh, so I was pretty successful in keeping the scope down. And I actually finished it, which was like, that's the most important thing you can do with a game, pretty much. Right. <laughs> or any sort of like creative product. Uh, you you know you can have a million things on your hard drive just floating around, but um, one released thing is worth an infinite number of unreleased things. So um, even though I have my issues with Sagebrush, I don't. There are things I'm not thrilled with about it. I got it done, and people seem to really connect with it. And I, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited overall with how it's gone. Well, all that said, though, that kind of makes you sort of a perfect teacher is it coming from the background of someone who's like, I could never do this. You know, I had mm-hmm. trouble. I struggled with it. And then like, after all this time coming full circle and making your own game, it I think is pretty fucking magnificent, but thank you. Yeah. That, that does make you like 
a good candidate for an educator. I think I, I also dabble in some uh, teaching on the side mm-hmm. and that's just, it's really rewarding because you, you realize uh, as you're saying it out loud to your students, like that you understand more than you think you understand. Like, I think I'm stupid most mm-hmm. of the time. And then I say out loud something, I'm like, shit, I just made that so clear and so concise. And yeah, that was yeah, absolutely. And I think that is, you know, I don't have, you know, I have a, I work with some co-teachers and some of them are like better at, you know, if someone has a technical question, they just have the answer right there. And that's what they bring to it is this like encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, um, the tech side of things or whatever. And I, I'll get there. Like, I mean, if, if you come to me with a question, like a specific tech question, like I'll get, I will get you to your destination, just maybe not quite as quickly as like some of these people can just pull it out. But what I do think, I think you're right. And, and, I try to bring that, uh, that sense of like, it's okay that you don't know. That doesn't mean right. this isn't for you because for years, that was the story I was telling myself was, oh, this isn't coming naturally, which means that it's never going to come, you know, <laughs> or like, I don't know everything, which means I don't know anything. And really the biggest breakthrough for me was realizing like, oh, a lot of people who pretty much everybody making a game, <laughs> it's just like, praying constantly and like, you know, just uh, trying to jerry rig this together and duct tape it to this. And, you know, there's some people who are better at it than others, obviously, but everything is, is, is uh, barely hanging together under the hood. Um, right. Right. It's all paper clips and rubber bands and chewing gum. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea. I thought that like, I thought that there was just, you know, people had these like magnificently well-oiled machines and everything like worked together beautifully all the time. And it's like, no, 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 nope. That's not how it goes. And so it's made me feel a lot more confident that like, you know, like uh, there was an example, you know, Celeste, which is an incredible game, right? They, they, I think the, the lead programmer in that released the code for their movement class in the game, like the C sharp code for their movement class. And people started like tearing it apart and making fun of it. And going like, look at this, this is like all just spaghetti code. And it's, it's you know, and it was like, sure, yeah, it, it may not be the most elegant code you've ever seen in your life. That game is incredible. <laughs> and you didn't know that till he posted this yeah. year. So and you made a lot of money. Like, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, basically. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I learned so much from making Sagebrush and then kind of made the same mistake again that I made like with that initial stealth game where I'm like, all right, now I know what I'm doing. Time to make a big giant game again. Um, except this time it's been going a lot better. Uh, so effigy was a challenge to myself to like, all right, Sagebrush didn't really have what you would call like game feel or like juice or like some of these terms that we use a lot in, in game design like circles. Uh, it's pretty much a game where you walk around and, and like hit E to enter, like pick up a note and read it, you know? Yeah. Like, um, there aren't really systems or mechanics like it, it, it. There wasn't much there that I could like make feel good. You know what I mean? Like, or, or yeah. feel satisfying other than narratively. So I wanted to challenge myself like, Hey, what about a game where you like do stuff? <laughs> you jump around. Now I'm, I don't mean to gatekeep. Like I'm absolutely, I love games that are very like, I'm not trying to like play game, like define what is a game and what's not because I, I love walking Sims. I love my art artsy avant-garde experimental experiential kind of like museum piece games just as much as i love you know assassin's creed or whatever 
but it was a challenge for me to like, Hey, what about something that's a little more dynamic, a little more active. Um, and so I started trying to build like a, a really just the movement in effigy before I did anything else. And like, I didn't even really have an idea for the game other than, Hey, can I just make like this character move around and feel good? And it went pretty well. It took a while, but it, it went pretty well. And I just started kind of piling on stuff on top of that. Yeah. Let's um, break down the whole story with Sagebrush too. Cause sure. Yeah. So this is really, really awesome. I, I actually played the game, I think like a couple of days after I watched Waco all the way through, which was weird. Oh yeah. Like, like I, I was just like, what's this game? Click. Oh fuck. That's so cool. And, yeah. And I, so I was already in that like kind of cult mindset and everything. And it's, it's really cool how, you you mentioned several di- different times here that you know you're kind of just trying to play to your strengths and not uh you know overextend yourself as you did with your first uh endeavor at a game project and mm-hmm. sagebrush is like kind of this perfect storm because it was at that time very fashionable to have like you know walking sims were a thing like oh mm-hmm. yeah let's just fucking dive right into that and you know like uh, david Szymanski started off with walking sim type games yep. before he drove into the, the retro shooter. And now he's, yeah, I've, I've since chatted with him and told him like, I swear I'm not trying to just copy your career. Yeah. <laughs> like it was not, yeah, yeah. It was unintentional, yeah. but yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that like walking sims were in vogue because at the time that I was making it, I was like, Oh, I think that that ship has sailed. You know, I kind of figured that like, you know, gone home kicked off this and, and like gone home and dear Esther kind of kicked off this wave of, of walking sims, which, you know, I know some people like hate to use that term because they think it's derogative. I don't care. Like, <laughs> it's your game. You call it whatever you want, man. Yeah. So for me, Walking Sim, it's a game that's primarily about exploration and just like basically reading people's diaries is the kind of the, you know. And I, for me, I was not trying to jump on any sort of trend. I knew that those games could be accepted in certain like in certain circles. You know, it wasn't like I was going to be making this game that would be completely ignored just because it didn't have guns. Actually, I will say, side note, at one point I did think about having a gun in Sagebrush that you never actually used. You would just have it around and you would walk around and it would like freak you out because you'd think you have to use it, but it would never actually come into play. But I decided not to. But yeah, um, I think it, the luck there was less that walking sims were in vogue and more that uh, cults have been kind of back in vogue. Um, or at least you know, stories about cults, um, mm-hmm. which again was not me trying to jump on any sort of bandwagon. If anything, I was caught up in that, you know, as well. Cause I, I mean, I've always been interested in, in um, people's belief systems, right. uh, whether it's like, you know, religious and, uh, and some of that just is my own personal like history with, with religion and all that kind of stuff. But um, I just, I don't know. I find it really interesting. And some, some of it's political beliefs, some of it's religious beliefs and, and cults are obviously kind of that extreme that most extreme version of that. And uh, it started with me just kind of like reading about Scientology and going like, how do people believe this stuff? Wait, actually some like people do believe this stuff. It's they're not insane, you know? And then uh, from there expanding out and reading about, yeah, reading about uh, the branch Davidians, reading about uh, Jonestown and all the, like the kind of major ones. But for me, the most influential thing was actually a smaller, uh, it was, there was a national geographic documentary about a much smaller cult um, that was in New Mexico. And I think at most they had 40 or so people. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was not this like 6,000 huge, you know, compound or something like that. Like, like Jonestown, it was just this small little group. They didn't hurt anybody outside of, well, outside of their group. 
and they had a leader who believed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And anyway, the, they, they allowed a documentarian in because apparently they, it never occurred to them that this could go badly for them. <laughs> they were, they'd all bought into it so much that they didn't see that there was something weird about a guy who wanted them to all to move out in the middle of desert. Um, and who, you know, basically had, let's say, access to all of like the women in the group, including some that were underage. And that ended up being his downfall. He's in prison now. But uh, at the time of the documentary, this was not, that was not the case. Um, he was, you know, they just let this guy in. Like, sure, we want to share our story with the world. And it was, it was just fascinating because it was less, it was, a, I don't want to say more relatable, <laughs> but um, it was less uh, extreme of a story, you know, it didn't end in like flames or it didn't end in, you know, a fiery gunfight or anything like that. It was just like, Hey, here are some people who quietly go live in the desert. And even these, this quiet small group in the middle of the desert still has these rampant abuses. Like you just can't escape it in these groups. Like give somebody a little taste of power, you know? Um, And I don't think this guy's a con man. I think he genuinely believes that he's the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, but that doesn't mean that he uh, isn't willing to be manipulative. I don't know. I guess that, that that's what it was watching it. I was like, who is this guy? You yeah. Not only like it, it, uh, I was trying to figure out, are these people con men or like L. Ron Hubbard with Scientology? Are they con men or are they literally just insane? And the there is no easy answer. There's no answer. I think there are probably a couple that are just con men. But the more you read about it, the more muddled it gets. Um, and that was so interesting to me this guy who can genuinely believe that he is righteous and good and everything, and then act like a complete monster towards the people he supposedly loves and is protecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the flip side of that was, Hey, who joins these things? Are they all just desperate idiots? And no, it turns out there is no real like profile of a cult member. You know, <laughs> they can be yeah. educated or uneducated. You know, they can be, you know, like there isn't like a, cultist gene or something like that that just you know and so it seemed like certainly they prey on people's people at their lowest points and they they offer them you know a sense of community or a sense of belonging or a sense of purpose when they're at they're really low and so anyway sagebrush was just me not trying to have an answer for this stuff but just kind of exploring it um and trying to present it in a way that i don't think games typically do because typically in games cultists like cults there are tons of cults in games it's typically we're trying to summon Satan or whoever, yeah. and Dream version. you should probably kill them all. And that's great. I love killing cultists in games. It's whatever you know. Like I'm effigy is also about a cult more or less, and it's not really trying to dive into their <laughs> psychology so much. Um, a little, but not to the same level. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I was like, oh, this this feels. There have been books and there have been films and stuff that have tried to tackle it, but not really games. So I thought, hey, maybe that'll maybe I'll do that. So I just kind of took what I'd been reading about and tried to layer it onto this this walking sim that felt like a this walking sim format that felt like something that I could actually finish. <laughs> uh, so part of my experience with Sagebrush was kind of wishing that I was like, man, I really wish I, I should go back and read the Bible again more thoroughly. Not mm-hmm. because I need to like get right with Jesus, but mm-hmm. because like I really want to understand more of what's going on in games like this because it's so cool and you're mm-hmm. so like detailed and well thought out and some of the little things that you kind of place in there and have the characters, uh, well, not really act out, but, you know, voice, I guess, in the recordings and in their diaries and things. And 
I was kind of wondering, like, what what was your religious or theological background? Um, yeah, so I mean, I was despite how the game may come off, like, I didn't yeah. have like a bad experience, you know. Um, right. I don't. I'm not a religious person now. I was raised in a fairly religious family. Uh, I was raised Catholic, and honestly, any issues I have with it are not like. I didn't have a bad experience. It was perfectly nice and fine, you know, but even, even having a perfectly nice and fine experience growing up, um, you know, going to church every week, you know, I was baptized. I was confirmed. I had my first communion and all that. Um, like, and having a pretty religious extended family, like I just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that I was like, Oh, this is a cult. And these are all a bunch of charlatans or anything like that, uh, or a bunch of idiots or con men or something like that. It was more, why are we right? You know, I was, I was always like, okay, so what makes us right? And you know, the guys across the street at the other church wrong. Um, and I couldn't shake that even when I was like eight, you know, I'd ask my parents that and they'd be like, shut up. No, they, you know, um, they were pretty, like we, we lived in a pretty, uh, uh, open minded house. And like, I, Part of it was that I, I had my own religious experience, but I would my my parents were totally fine with me going with my friends. If I had slept over on Saturday night at a friend's house, I could go with them to their church on you know Sunday and or whatever. Um, and I so I got to see a number of different you know at this point it was it was still all Christian, but um, I got to see a number of different theology <laughs> theological viewpoints uh, growing up and how hey they all think they're right you know i mean this is not i i'm not the first person to have this these questions right like i'm not pretending to you know uh that this is like particularly deep but i just it was something i couldn't ever quite shake uh, so my religion my religious experience was not bad so despite sagebrush depicting some really dark stuff uh i that wasn't from personal experience that was that was from research but the the fundamental like question about like okay so how do people become convinced that they're right uh is it has been with me this whole time i don't know and i don't necessarily have an answer it's you know i don't know if there is an answer one of my favorite parts of the game is there, there's a scene where you're standing and you're searching the campers and you find this mm-hmm. pamphlet it's like are you in a cult and it gives you like a checklist of like if you have more than a couple of these you're probably yeah. in a cult and the character's like, you know, not really able to come to terms with that at that point in the story anyway. And Yeah, that's a that's from an actual um, nonprofit organization. Like, I just took it word for word from them. Mm-hmm. It's in the credits that, you know, so um, that is for it was intended for like deprogramming cult members. But yeah, like, I think there are people who, you know are very, I, I think I, probably a lot of people in cults, if you were to ask them about it, they'd be like, we're not a cult. They're a cult over there, but we're not yeah. like, you know, and but that's the yeah. fundamental part of it. I mean, there's no different than like a military branch or like the Marines kick ass, fuck the Navy. Like it's, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. it's tribalism. All it all comes around. down to tribalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's one of the most, um, core human, mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, feelings is to pick a team. And then the other team is, the other team is bad and wrong. You know, whether it's your, you know, for me, it's it's college. I grew up where, you know, University of Michigan, good. Michigan State, bad. And then my sisters went to Michigan State, and that's fine. They're great. I'm from Alabama, so it was like University sure. of Alabama or Auburn was like the, that 
forever that I could give a shit less. One of the things that sticks out, you know, when you're talking about this religious stuff is that uh, it is all in the eye of the beholder uh, or the, mm-hmm. you know, interpreted by the patron of the art. Cause I, I talked to Erdorf as well. And one of the things that he said was that, uh, you know, he is a religious guy. He actually is a Christian and mm-hmm. his responses, you know, from different people were like, he'd get these emails that were one guy that's like, dude, I love the way that your game like illustrates how good triumphs over evil and does, you know, so much good for talking mm-hmm. about how the Catholic church does good things and all this kind. And then the next email is just like, thank you so much. Like your comments. Thanks for sticking it to the church. Yeah. 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 Fuck yeah the Catholic church. <laughs> so it's so um, much like interpretation, I think. So I, I, really I, I got a little bit of that. that. Obviously. Yeah. You know, Sagebrush didn't hit the, has not hit the, the level of success that like that faith has. Um, but I've gotten a little bit of that where like some people reach out, you know, um, but typically, I don't know, the, the ones that have been the most, like the responses that have been the most striking to me, like, yes, there have been people who've been like, oh man, you know, yeah, religion is a cancer, which is not my point. I wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't trying to, I have a complicated relationship with it, but I'm not trying to be this edgelord, you know, atheist or right. something. Um, but I did have people reach out who basically had cult adjacent experiences, not something as extreme as this, you know, um, thankfully, but, but who were basically parts of cults who basically said a lot of it really rang true with them. Um, or they were, you know, being groomed for, you know, to join. And then they saw it, they, they got their way out of it, you know, before anything, you know, before they became a member. Um, but hearing that like, Oh, you got, no, a lot of this really rang true for me. I was like, okay, I got it right. More or less. I, th- I think you, Definitely captured it. One of the things that you said when you were kind of uh, introducing yourself was that you had gone through a period where you were experimenting with AV Club and also creative writing. And you also mm-hmm. said that you're really uh, confident in your writing skills. And that's, I mean, it, this is a narrative driven game. And you really kind of, I was not expecting anything close to the level of like actual narrative drive that I got when I played Sagebrush. It's so uh, immersive and so well detailed. Maybe you see it differently in hindsight, but for, for the user experience, at least on my end, I I really felt fully that you were essentially a master of crafting the story at the very least. And the rest of it's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, We could talk about the ending credits where you don't get stats or I'm not trying to fix fix that. Thank God. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a that was a bug that I left sitting for way, way, way too long. Uh, yeah. When I first released it, it worked, and then uh, actually the update that came along with the console ports of it, um, I broke. I broke the the stats and one of the achievements, and then I just kind of didn't get around to fixing it until like two weeks ago or last week or something like that. I just I love the the way the story unfolds where you start off and you're, you are, you know, this first person perspective of a, an unnamed character with no background or details. And all you can do is just, you know, you're introduced very quickly to the mechanics of the game, which is like pop the trunk, grab the tool, get after it, you know, get through this fence. And then you start exploring the community center. And there's just so much right off the bat in that community center that introduces you to what we're going to be doing here today. (laughs) And that's, uh, you know, you have the the kitchen where you've got these notes of like so and so left some shit over in another place, or I hid the I forget they hid the keys in a shed, I believe, and and you keep going around the room. You have all these uh, hymns that are around. It, it really does a good job right off the bat of just capturing 
uh, the curiosity of the player and also mm-hmm. introducing all of everything you're going to need to know to understand how this game's going to work. So right off the bat, this game starts just perfect. As we roll on with it, like you, you've done such a good job of kind of placing things around so that you can explore them in, in their own order. Like for instance, I, uh, I dug in the cornfield. I found the shovel and dug in the cornfield way before I was told to do that, mm. um, which was just a weird coincidence. I just happened to like, I was like walking across that area. I'm like, well, I guess I'll go check out this barn. And I just cut across the cornfield. I'm like, oh, that dirt looks interesting. <laughs> Let's figure that out. So uh, what was your plan? Did you have a plan of like how you wanted to unfold the story like that? Um, yeah. So the first, it started with the map. The first mm-hmm. thing that was pretty much set in place was the map. Um, it barely changed like layout wise from the very beginning. Um, I didn't have... I didn't really have like a, a set story going in, you know, I knew that I wanted to. Okay. Well, I was, okay. The very initial idea was that it was going to be the reveal at the end was going to be, and then everyone killed themselves. You know, like that was going to be the big plot twist. And then I realized after maybe a week of working on the game, like that's a terrible plot twist because that's how every cult like story ends, right? Like that's not surprising everyone will see that coming from a you know you're exploring an empty cult compound i wonder what happened um so yeah my very initial idea was like oh it'll be a a mystery of discovering what happened and then the answer is and then they all committed mass suicide um and i was like well one that makes it i think kind of that feels cynical to me to be like you know gotcha suicide is like a plot twist and then two like i just didn't think it would be a good one because it's everyone would see it coming from before they even started the game. Um, So then I I was like, okay, so what do I do about this? This is kind of lame. And then I thought, okay, what if literally the first thing you are told in the game is everybody here killed themselves? Yeah. And I was like, okay, let's try that. And like, then it became that, that really became like the, um, the framework for the entire story, because um, by telling you right up front how it ends, uh, it took the it took the pressure off to have a big reveal, you know, have like this big plot twist. I mean, there's still there are things that get revealed, obviously, like it's not you don't know everything up front, but it, it kept it from being like feeling like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of thing. Like, oh, gotcha, you know, uh, and then it also it added this level of like sadness to the story that wasn't initially there. Initially, it was going to be a lot more horror focused and certainly people react to it like it's a horror game, but there's really nothing. There's only a couple of elements in it that are actually like, there are only a couple parts where I'm kind of like, Ooh, are you spooked? And so what it moving that up front, that reveal, um, which again, it's literally like the intro, it just says like, Hey, this is the site of the perfect heaven mass suicide. Yeah. Um, it just, it gave this melancholy to everything. Um, that I was like, Oh, right. This isn't, this isn't about like, man, cults that's fucked up, huh? This is about learning to like empathize with them a little bit, not forgive them for what they did, but like kind of understanding them a little bit and became more about the people uh, than about the like horror. I guess if that makes sense. Um, yeah. It became a more personal story um, just naturally because of deciding to, to reveal it up front. Um, at least in my mind that that was the natural fallout of that decision. Um, so then so I had the map and then I decided, okay, you'll end up at the chapel and there will be like things to reveal, but, but mostly this is going to be about taking you through 
little snapshots of people's, the different cult members and their experiences. And so then I would kind of craft that out. I struggled for a long time between deciding um, just how open to make it. It's interesting to me that you said that it's a, it feels open-ended because one of the things I'm disappointed with it is actually that it, it is very linear. Um, yes, you can solve the puzzle you did or to, like, yeah, you know, and if you want to speed run it, that's what you do. But it actually is fairly gated in terms of like, you have to, you kind of have to like, in terms of the knowledge that I dole out to the player or the yes. you know, game doles out to the player, uh, it, it takes you in a pretty direct, like you're always kind of being led to the next point. Uh, early on, I had, I had thought about having it be completely open where the game was not locked except for maybe like the chapel. Um, and you, it was all about you piecing the game together, but I kind of chickened out on that. And, I don't think it'd be as fun that way, you know? Yeah. There, it's interesting. There, like, there's a game. I don't know if you're familiar with the game, The Pains Creek Killings. I don't believe I am. Um, it's another. It's an indie adventure game, mystery game. But that is, I had a great time with that, and that's very much how that game is structured. It's basically like, hey, here's this town that is empty. You know, um, some stuff went down here, and you more or less have free reign um, of the town. Uh, and like my notes, like the game doesn't really tell you that much. It's up to you to keep your own notes and make your own conclusions. And I just had like pages and pages of, of like insane person notes, you know, trying to piece together the, the mystery of what happened in this town. And then and I was like, Oh, I want to do that. And I didn't, I didn't quite have the confidence that I could pull that off. Um, so I, I reined it in and tried to string things together with at least light puzzles, which I think works out. I don't think it's bad. You know, I'm happy with it. Yeah. But I think in an ideal world, I would have figured out a way to make it a little less linear. I, I can't assume that anybody's going to like what I like because I, I guess I'm a particular personality type where I'm totally cool with you just telling me a story. Like that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's it. That, if I know ahead of time, like that's kind of what I'm getting into. It doesn't disappoint me. I've never wanted, been one of those people that needs things to be, Oh, it feels, I don't get why like feeling linear on rails became right. Like a derogatory thing in gaming. I, I, I kind of get why, but I, I don't know why that's such a problem in general. Like some of the best damn games ever made are just a straight up, story yeah yeah oh yeah i I mean i certainly have like preferences but i i don't i'm absolutely not one of those kinds of people who's like this game this style is better than like objectively better you know like sometimes you want sometimes you want non-linearity sometimes you want to just go mess around in a world and take it at your own pace and sometimes you want this like but you lose like the carefully crafted pacing of, of a linear story and um i think i was trying to find a balance there where it was like I wanted the player to have to do some of the work in piecing the story together. I didn't want mm-hmm. to just reveal everything to them because I like when you kind of put a little bit on, on the player. Um, I think that's why people like connect well with like dark souls or, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, we're going to, we're going to give you this much of the story and it's up to you to like do the work on this part of the story, you know, piecing things together. Um, and I wanted to, I, I wanted to do that where there were things that you had to kind of connect um and and fill out for yourself but um i don't know i guess i <laughs> i didn't want to completely leave it entirely to the player i don't know so with our with our cult leader did you model him after any particular cult leader that anyone would know of or was this kind of just a a conglomeration of ideas that you had yeah the whole cult is is a conglomeration of you know uh 
I've actually, one of the criticisms the game has gotten from some people that are very familiar with a, a lot of, like, have done the kinds of, like, research and reading I've done or more, um, are like, all you did was check off a greatest hits list of <laughs> cults. And it's like, yeah, okay, guilty as charged. Um, but it, it is absolutely intended to be, like, an amalgamation of elements of different, you know, known and lesser known cults. Mm-hmm. You know, so things like, you know, obviously, like the 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 paranoia uh, towards being infiltrated by like government agents is something that you know comes out of you know the Branch Davidians or or Jonestown. Um, but then there are things, but actually, like yeah, the leader himself was actually more modeled on that that uh, that National Geographic documentary I told you about. Um, why am I? Why is his name escaping me right now? Uh, Michael Traveser, Traveser, Traveser. Okay. Or Wayne Bent. He has two names that he goes by. And it's interesting because, so I'm not sure if you, well, you probably saw in the credits, like I do the voice acting for the cult leader. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the, some of the reviews have pointed out that it didn't, it was kind of a wussy sounding cult leader. (laughs) Like, you know, and I think they were expecting someone, I do declare to, you know, in this day we will be, you know, like they wanted this very strong kind of, Right, Southern Baptist, you know, powerful. They want Jim Jones, like that's yeah, really... yeah. They want this really like powerful, uh, charismatic evangelical character, and and part of what struck me in that documentary about Wayne Bent is that he's not a charismatic guy. Right, he's like he's not handsome. He's like this frail little old man, and he talks very softly, and he sounds a little creepy, but not like movie creepy he's just kind of this soft-spoken old man who just tells you that he's jesus and these people are like oh really yeah you know you are and who's the most like motivated i would think to want to have sex with everybody's wives would probably be somebody (laughs) if you're already handsome and attractive and charismatic you probably don't have to start a cult to get laid so probably not but um but yeah he it was just, it was interesting to me that I think in the popular image, the popular image of a cult leader is someone who has this like power in their voice and this, this charisma. Right. And he just super did not have that. And there are absolutely like people that would, you know, like these cult leaders that people would die for that just, they don't have that charisma. It's not. And so I wanted to kind of push that. Like he's this quiet little guy who feels genuine to his followers. Um, and it's not like, it's not Hitler. He's not like standing there having like these grand speeches where, you know, and they're all just like caught up in the fire of it, you know, or something like they're just, I don't know. Uh, so I, I, I specifically made him sound a little like meek and, and wussy. And <laughs> that was absolutely intentional. I think I did okay, but you know, I can see why some people weren't happy with it. If that's not what they were expecting. Um, One of the important aspects of the way that he communicates with his cult members is you know, he's writing, you know, his holy book yeah. and constantly revising it and having them study and study the revisions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's really, it, that's kind of part of the unraveling that I, I don't know how much you want to spoil the story, but mm-hmm. that's a really interesting part of the, the way that you told the story. And, it, and that aspect of him actually makes more sense now that you've said it, that you want him to kind of be this meat character. It even makes more sense that he would communicate more through writing and less through, you know, giving speeches. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, and that was also that was something that came out of, again, just reading about a number of cults. Like a lot of them decline over time; they kind of fall apart. 
you know, they start, they start with one like set of theology or theological values or something like that. And then over time, the leader just suddenly starts shifting them. Not even necessarily intentionally. It's just, you know, some of it's intentional. Some of it's not. You see that in Scientology where it started off as basically like uh, an off kilter, but you know, the self-help group basically, you know, mm-hmm. and then we end up with, you know, what everyone knows about Xenu and, you know, um, air space planes and i don't know anyway they tend to like kind of start with that fear of the outside and then one of the things that you tackle is that at some point in time they start to fear someone on the inside and then that leads to a split or you know the branch davidians are a perfect example where you have david koresh goes away to palestine and israel for a long time and then comes back to like reclaim his throne they didn't even talk about that in the television series which really Bugged oh, me yeah. out of it. Yeah, they, yeah. They, the new TV series is more like fuck the ATF, but and the right. FBI. <laughs> but well, that they, certainly they, in that, in that case, shape. That, that's a valid point. But yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think when you've built your entire identity around excluding almost the entire human population from mm-hmm. being valid or correct about anything, you know, when when you've made everyone else your enemy. Uh, which is like, again, if you go back to that cult pamphlet, that's absolutely one of the things like one of the biggest red flags is like, it's not, do you believe weird stuff? It's, do you believe weird stuff and you believe everyone else is wrong and only the the cluster of people in your group have got it figured out mm-hmm. um, and they're dangerous because they don't have it right. But when you've built your entire identity around excluding everybody, I think it's pretty easy for people to fall from the inner circle to the outer circle, you know, for you to start doubting, you know. Especially as the um, as the kind of like loyalty tests become more and more extreme, you know, yeah. um, as, as more and more blind loyalty is demanded, um, and and like the expectations just keep growing and growing, and and then you know inevitably someone can't quite keep up with the demands being yeah. placed on them. And you want to talk about the barn? That's one of the more interesting. If there is a horrific part, it's that uh, in, mm-hmm. your, in your game. So. How did you decide on this particular ritual? Um, so that actually, that's where I took a little more artistic license. That wasn't based on any, uh, at least modern cult that I, uh, that I came across. Um, certainly historically there have been, you know, groups of monks and that kind of thing who self-flagellate and otherwise, you know, mutilate themselves. Um, and it was just, yeah, it, it's something that was really, really interesting to me. Like, how far can you push someone's, like I said, those loyalty tests. Um, one thing that did come out of the research is a thing that's really common to cults is um, public punishment. Right. Uh, is you must, if you if you break the rules or otherwise um, give anyone a reason to suspect that you're not perfectly in line, they don't pull you aside and go, hey, I think you really need to, like, you know keep up or like you know maybe reconsider your behavior or something it's no you'll be brought in front of the group and everyone will be yelling shame shame or something like that at you and that is something that it was like almost uniform across the the various groups that there was a public shaming aspect and so i kind of just you know i still did want it to be a bit of a horror game so i was like all right let's take it let's take that to an extreme where it's not even just public shaming it's like public mutilation uh like self-mutilation like how much can a person debase themselves in front of other people to prove their loyalty? Um, I just 
I really, I really enjoyed the whole narrative of the game. I, and especially it, without spoiling the end, I will say that it, it doesn't, as you said many times, it's, it's not necessarily about like, hey, look how fucked up this cult was. It's like a story about closure, if anything. I feel like it's yeah. relatable not just to people who, you know, escaped a cult or whatever. It's like, it's really a story about just coming to terms with things that happened in the past. And I think that's something that evolved for me. Like, you know, in that initial conception, it was not necessarily... I wanted it to be a realistic depiction of like cult life, but it wasn't necessarily like, and I really want you to feel it, feel for them. But then yeah. as I, the more I read about it, the more interviews I read with like people who escaped cults or survivors, you know, that kind of thing. It was like, no, this isn't, this isn't just something to like, be like, how messed up is this? This is like a genuinely sad thing. And yeah. like, the more I felt for them, the more I wanted to reflect that in the game. So um yeah again i I'll, I'll hold from giving away the entire <laughs> the entire game but um so that was kind of important for me to not feel like i was exploiting other people's again because this isn't a personal experience i didn't want to feel like i was exploiting other people's trauma you know right. for my own like jollies <laughs> so um yeah so i guess the other big question that i had for you in, in regards to the production of the game was that you, you mentioned yourself doing the voice acting and mm-hmm. Some of the voice acting is like really fucking solid. The the lead character who plays uh, Lillian, who is that? Mm-hmm. And what, does she that's my wife. Yeah, um, sick dude. Like really solid job, man. No, I know. Uh, yeah. I I thought that she would do a good job, uh, and then she did an amazing job. She's not a voice actor. She's never done anything yeah. like that before. Um, no, it was literally it was uh, my wife recorded at our kitchen table, you know, on a blue yeti, <laughs> you know, like. But no, it was just like. Uh, I didn't have a budget, you know, and I didn't, I thought I was going to sell this game. I thought it would be the first thing that I put a price tag on, but I didn't expect to make any money off of it. I I didn't go in. Like I was, I was like pathologically afraid to spend any money on it, to be honest, (laughs) because I was like, well, if I don't spend any money on it, then anything I make will just be profit, you know? Um, So yeah, I asked my wife if she'd be willing to do the the voice acting. Um, Initially there wasn't going to be any, but then a friend of mine really, uh, uh, he basically said like the thing that stood out to him it, with uh, like gone home was the voice acting because it really added this like human element to it. Um, and so I was like, all right, maybe I can figure out voice acting, which, you know, honestly voice acting between, between getting the voice acting to be done and implemented and the subtitles and all that stuff. That was like one of the biggest chunks of time in the game. So it, yeah. it really did take a lot of time to implement, but I think it was absolutely so worth it. And yeah, um, Sarah, my wife, like just absolutely killed it. I was like, I, again, I knew she would do a good job, and then she did, like, an amazing job. I was really happy with it. That's um, when you know you got a good relationship going where you're like, hey, could you read all this really fucked up shit that I oh, wrote yeah. down in the oh, other room? <laughs> the best review I ever got, or the worst, this person basically wrote, like, a 2,000-word essay. They linked, it's in their, it's in the Steam, it, there's a Steam review that links out to a Medium article that this person wrote because they couldn't fit it all in their Steam review that basically tears the game to shreds. They hated it, they hated it, they hated it. But at the end, they get into, they were deeply, they were made deeply uncomfortable because by it because they, like, they realized in the credits that the voice actor of Lillian and the voice actor of the cult leader, and I also play, like, the dad in one, like, one brief scene, like, her, that character's father, and neither of them are nice to her. Basically, they're both like abusive towards her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this person accused me of like playing out abusive fantasies towards my wife. So here's what I want: I want like I want a stream of like David Samansky's wife playing finger bones. Like, 
Because like, what the f- what the fuck, man? Like, how do you get? I get it. Like, I, I've got a pretty fucked up idea of you know fantasy worlds mm-hmm. and storytelling and all that kind of thing. But I don't want anything bad to happen to anyone in real life. No, no. And he's just got one of those amazingly twisted like Stephen King sure. minds. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's really interesting, dude. I, I didn't even consider that dynamic. No, not and I I mean, who am I to say? No, there's none of that going on. But like, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh it was it was literally just a budget issue you know um yeah. if i could have hired a better voice actor for my to do the co-leader parts i would have done it um but i didn't have i didn't have a budget um but no she like as soon as i heard her do the first take like i was like okay we're good yeah you know well um, i'm super happy that it happened that way because like i honestly like lillian's voice is like kind of the main driving thing through the whole story really just yeah. anchors you in so i really like that Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you want to talk about the other game now? Effigy? Yeah. Or sure. any of the other games. You, we can do whatever you want, but like, I want no, to talk about Effigy. Let's talk about Effigy. So, we brought you in to talk about retro shooters on the Retro Shooter Podcast. I guess we better get into it. Effigy <laughs> is really, like, so far, the demo is really, really cool. I really couldn't have seen myself falling in love with it the way I did. Again, I, I, this sounds like I just brought you on to say you're amazing and I'll just kiss your ass the whole time. And it's not like, <laughs> like I'll tell people if I don't like their stuff. Um, this is a very interesting take on the, the retro shooter project in general. It's got so many different elements from different games. As you said, it's I mean, it's got the PSX graphics. It looks, uh, it functions sort of like quake does the enemies right now sort of feel a little bit more like serious Sam, which would be my only main critique. Um, but Again, kind of. I'm assuming that the enemies currently are something of a placeholder. A lot of this stuff is placeholder. Yeah, I mean, no, for sure, the AI is one of the um, one of the main things that needs to get overhauled. It's not there yet at all. Um, And the other part of it is that there's just not much variety. So, like, you know, even in you know, if you look at Quake, like those, they actually they're pretty dumb, Um, but they're fun to fight because there's a variety. They mix and match, Mm -hmm. and and you know. And right now I don't really have that because I only have two enemies in the game. Um, I know that uh, there was something they ran into with Wrath was dealing with the way that Quake enemies are designed to function, which where they just kind of like chase the most li- like straight lines towards mm-hmm. wherever you are. And that didn't work in some of the level design that they had with Wrath. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's a challenge. and I, it's, it's one thing that I kind of assumed going in. If I'm playing a demo, I assume we're not at the you know, finished product. So what was your initial decision to get into this, uh, to make that jump from, all right, I'm ready to do the shooter thing. Right. So uh, I feel like every project I've started has kind of just been like, I wonder if I can do X or whatever. And in this case, it was, I wonder if I can build like a a first person character controller, like character movement that feels satisfying. Because again, I, I said like on Sagebrush, there really just wasn't any of that, like, game feel which you know like i'm happy with i'm happy with sagebrush and how it feels and how it plays but um i don't know that you would necessarily say like oh it feels it just feels so good to like move around in sagebrush like no it's it's functional it's basically using the built-in unity controller which is kind of baseline you know whatever not not great it's fine it works so just as literally just like a programming challenge to myself was like hey maybe i can like i wonder if i can do this now that i've learned a lot 
And uh, I mean, I, I certainly struggled with it for a while, but, I, um, but then, you know, I've got footage of like where it's just, you know, gray boxes and the enemies are all just capsules and don't even move and stuff. And just, you know, that I just played around until I had like pretty good feeling movement. And then uh, I, the first thing I added was a double jump because I love double jumps more than anything in games. And then I got the double jump in there. I had some other movement options that I've since pulled out because they weren't they weren't working with the 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 pace of the gameplay that I necessarily wanted. They were breaking it up a little too much. Um, I had like a mantle uh, kind of thing, but it was a slower mantle. Um, and it didn't if I sped it up to where it was something more like the modern dooms or something like that, where you you, you hit a ledge and kind of flip over, um, it didn't feel it felt too jerky because uh, I don't have like that kind of nice smooth animation in there. But um, anyway, so I, I pulled that out. It ended up not I don't miss it. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I just I just wanted to build a character controller as a, a challenge to myself um, and then was happy with that. And then I was like, all right, cool. Can I make guns feel good? Let's try that. And then I put in some guns and, until I was happy with how they feel. And, you know, they're not 100 percent there, but they're they're I'm pretty happy with how they feel so far. You know, when I'll say it's very validating when Dave Autry plays your game and reloads your shotgun and goes, oh, fuck yeah, man. And I was like, all right, I did it. Yeah. But yeah, it, in, in a way, it was basically just like, hey, can I recreate, you know, Quake or like Dusk style movement? Um, which is funny because there was a point where um, I sent a build over to, I'm on the Haunted PS1 Discord with, uh, and, and Dave Szymanski is on there. And I sent him a like very early build. And he's like, uh, try messing with these values. And I did. And it felt 200% better you know with just changing a couple of values because he's a savant (laughs) with that stuff so yeah um i started with the movement um and and then i also if it was kind of like this meets this uh i wanted i wanted the game i wanted to marry kind of the 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 pace of combat and the feel of a retro shooter Mm -hmm. um but with I didn't want to do just like a linear series of levels. I wanted, I wanted there to be this sense of exploration um, more akin, not necessarily I've called it Metroidvania, but not necessarily because Metroidvania is very like, Oh, the doors are glowing with the like symbol of the item you need to open it. And I don't necessarily want to get into that. Um, I guess more of like a souls game where it's just like something where you might be able to wander into a spot. You're not necessarily supposed to be in, you know, or something. Um, it's not it's not one to one either souls or metroidvania it's literally it, but i like i like interconnected worlds i like because yeah. they feel they just feel more like a place you know um and i've just always appreciated that being able to come back through an area and recontextualizing it with new knowledge or new abilities or new you know coming at it from a new direction because you stepped off an elevator and you're like oh i'm back here oh like it's the i love that feeling whether it's whether it's in a Souls game or whether it's in Resident Evil 2 or something like that, you know. Um, so that was a goal of mine was to basically have levels that kind of loop around and and fit a little more naturally together rather than I'm just going to linear. Like the demo itself is fairly linear, um, but I hope it gives like an impression of that, that, that being where things are going to go. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, and then I also just wanted to have this like evocative, weird world. It's uh, kind of like, weird sci-fi world that was um, 
a little metal, but also just kind of like very kind of like Dune inspired, just kind of this weird, vaguely psychedelic kind of, you know, where you see a structure off in the distance and you're not totally sure what it is kind of thing. Yes. So do you find as a, as a level designer that Mm -hmm. when when you're making a game like this, where you do re-explore areas, is it easier to design the level because you get to reuse assets or is it harder to design levels because you have to make them work multi-purpose? Um, it's harder uh, okay. because I, I would say the one way where it's easier is that I think players will let you off the hook a little bit. Um, if they know that a space, they inherently know like players are savvy enough to know if a, if a space is designed to be like this very clearly orchestrated, like carefully paced encounter or something like that versus if it's just kind of this space you're meant to move through um, a little more organically. Um, even if you ask someone randomly off the street, you know, the difference between, you know, a quake level and a call of duty level, they might not be able to express it, but I think you can just kind of tell like, like a player kind of inherently is a, like expects different things from something that's pushing you forward and has, you know, these really scripted encounters versus something that's more like, Hey, here's the space. There are enemies here. There's some doors go nuts. Um, and uh, and so I think you are let a little bit off the hook in terms of like needing to pace everything out super carefully when you're doing uh, a level like that. Um, but it is it is hard. It's harder when you you can't you can't know exactly which way a person is coming from. You can't know exactly what abilities they're bringing into an area. You you know um, you can gate it to an extent, and you can kind of hide. You know, even something like a Dark Souls game is more linear than it looks. Yeah, more linear than it feels. So you know you can hide it and gate it to an extent, but um, no, it, it's. I think I typically, yeah, I've I've had to come at it from like, how does this fit into the game world, and then break it down into like, okay, how is it fun to go through? Is it fun to go through it this way? Is it fun to go through it this way? Can you make all these jumps from every direction? <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, yeah. The and to be to be completely honest, I haven't even had to deal with a lot of that yet because. You know, I, I have basically the demo levels that you saw, which, excuse me, right now are fairly linear because I haven't built some of the ways that they wrap together. Um, mm-hmm. So, there, yeah, um, I have a couple that are not part of the demo. Um, but so far, I haven't been fully tested on that yet. So um, we will see how it plays out. But uh, no, I've definitely been building them in mind, knowing that, like, OK, you'll have to come back through this. Um I don't know. Like some some of the levels I think will work. Sometimes it works where like yes, technically you can walk you can go back through it, but you're going to it is going to be a very different experience like the prison which is the second half of the the demo. Right. When you play through it the first time, it's all about kind of unlocking this courtyard and then making your way through the courtyard. You know, in the full game when you're coming back through it, that courtyard's unlocked, so it's basically just a space you can freely pass through now. Um, you're still moving through it, but now it's a quick thing. And it's that recontextualizing thing where it's like, oh, here's this area that I spent an hour in trying to unlock and, and kind of conquer. And now it's like, now I can just sprint through. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a player, I think that feels really satisfying, at least to me. Um, but certainly there will be areas that are, that um, will be like essentially reversible levels where it's like, it has to be, fun and challenging to go this way it has to be fun and challenging to go this way 
Um, so it's a mix um, of, of areas that are, are meant to function like that and areas that really are kind of like linear levels snuck in there, mm-hmm. you know, like the prison. That's right. I don't know. That was kind of a messy answer, but <laughs> that's fun. It was a, it was a really uh, particular question. So it's all, it's okay. It's just one of them that kind of popped into my mind, mm-hmm. but I I'm also curious, uh, given that you're, you know, you've already shown how good you are at narrative, are you, are you planning to have like a, a nameless, faceless hero here, uh, or are we going to find out more throughout time? What can we expect story-wise from this game? Yeah, so that's another thing that the demo didn't really... Um, there wouldn't really have been a demo at this point, except that um, Haunted PS1 was creating this demo disc, and I really wanted to be a part of it. Um, yeah. It's a group that I'm very fond of. They're all great people, and it was just too cool of an opportunity to pass up. So I kind of like pushed... I pushed it out a little bit earlier than I might otherwise have. Um, and I do think it's fun. And obviously like it's, you know, it's clicking with people, but um, it doesn't necessarily, it's not like a vertical slice of the game as it will be. Right. It's more of just right. like a, almost a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, here are some functional combat and some interesting environments to move through. Um, but there's a whole lot of stuff in there that, or that, that I have planned or uh, that are, is only half in there. And so, yeah, the, the narrative is one of those things where, um, that will probably be the most like, um, overtly souls like part of the game in terms, not necessarily the, the story itself, but the way it's told where, um, it's not going to be, you know, picking up audio logs from, you know, prisoners and stuff. But, um, I want to, I, I want to tell the story environmentally and through, you know, item descriptions and yeah, maybe some, maybe some text stuff that you find, but it will, you will be like a, you're a silent protagonist, um, but you do have an identity. You're not just literally just, you know, effigy guy or gal. Like uh, one of the things that again, doesn't really come across in the, in the demo is like the setup is more or less that you get this like message from your twin sister. Um, and so you're kind of there to like, she's like, I'm stuck on this moon. Come get me more or less. And then you're like, yeah. that's weird because this moon doesn't exist and I don't have a twin sister. So what? Um, and so you start, you got to explore. And of course you find a moon full of insane monk prisoner guys. Um, it will definitely, it'll have a narrative, but I, it, I wouldn't expect it to be like a, you know, uh, incredibly detailed. It'll be more of an evocative thing, uh, okay. or an atmospheric thing. Um, yeah. I like the John Carmack approach. I'm, I'm okay with both. I'm okay with telling me a story. I'm also okay with the stories just like in a porno. It doesn't matter. Like just <laughs> roll with it. So in, in between is fine. It's not, it's not, yeah. For me, it's not that the story doesn't matter. It absolutely does. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, compared to something like Sagebrush where it is super narratively driven, this is less mm-hmm. so, but yeah. um, the story's there. I have, I mean, I, I do plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got, it has themes and stuff, you know, it's not like I'm, it's, I'm not taking the porno approach, um, the Carmack approach where I like it. Oh, it just doesn't matter. It just needs to string things along, but, um, but it won't be having like lengthy cutscenes with long conversations with characters and stuff, at least not in its current form. I don't know. Yeah. It'll, it, it'll be, I, I want to challenge myself to try, tell an interesting story in a minimalist way. Again, I, I think when I was talking about Sagebrush, I said I like I do like putting some of the work on the player because I think as a player that's really satisfying when you feel like you've come to a realization yourself rather than the game 
just filling in a codex entry for you or something or just tell you know and so i, I want to play around with that yeah that's super cool so far the other thing that i really wanted to dive into was the uh, the weapon design uh which thus far really really impressive i don't know you probably didn't see it and now that i know you're a video editor i don't want you to see it but i did make a like a, a youtube watch like a five minute review okay <laughs> so it's you, you can tell that i'm not a video editor, oh, but I, I had some fun with it and yeah. the so the weapon design is really interesting, man. I, I like this mining laser. I think there's a lot of potential there. I I think that little John also has uh, sees the same thing that I do, and <laughs> as does Stone Cold Steve Austin. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It was funny because so that was when I started to work. When I started to realize, like, okay, this demo is going to happen. So I, I intentionally, you know, the first weapon I designed was the pistol. The second weapon I designed was the assault rifle. The third weapon I designed was the shotgun. And I very purposely did it in that order because I wanted to challenge myself to get the fundamentals feeling mm. satisfying um, before I started playing around with too much wild stuff. I was like, okay, can I make just a gun that just goes like satisfying to use? Um, and I mean, I'll leave that to you guys to decide, but um, I'm pretty happy with it. and. You know, then the AR and then the shotgun. So I wanted to get the staples down and see, like, can I do those and, and make them feel good before I start um, experimenting too much with new stuff. But and then when the demo started looming, <laughs> I was like, oh, great. I have a demo that has a pistol, an AR, shotgun. Like, they're fun to use, but they're not exactly super inspiring weapons. So I was like, okay. Because I, full disclosure, I do not have, like, all the weapons planned out, like, right now. I have ideas. Right. Um, but I don't have, like these are all of them and I'm going to hit them in this order. So I was like, okay, I need to, I want to get in there and play around with some more interesting ideas. Like I want to show people in this demo that it's not just going to be, you know, the guns you all know and expect. I want to get into some of that weird, like Turok, you know, uh, uh, playfulness with the, with the weapons. Um, And so that's where the mining laser came from. Um, And I, yeah, I absolutely intend for the rest of the, the kind of, the loadout to be a little more, a little more playful. So what was the full name of it again? Sorry. If you can say it, what's the full name of the weapon again? The mining laser. Yeah. That's the whole name for it. Cause it was like really long in the tech that you said you were going to play around telling the story through like pickups and things like that. And one of the things about the mining laser is, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a long name. It's a mining. La- well, that's not to be its full name. It's just a description. It's like, it's a standard, okay. issue, a standard issue mining laser. Uh, retrofitted onto a, a rifle stock. What? <laughs> it's a, yeah, I've I've fucking had so much fun with that. I, yeah. I don't know why that just really stood out to me. It's like this is that's when the game became like okay, this is just pure fun. And mm-hmm. then I spent like a long time running around just figuring out how I could attack people with that gun. Not even playing the damn game. Right. I was just like, how, what what can I do with this thing? So I'm trying to shoot it off the floor and angle it off of walls and everything. Like, so that was just a last minute idea for you. I won't say just like, I throw some shit together. Not last minute. It was, but within, uh, see the demo came out in early February and I worked on that in late December. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it wasn't an idea that I had in my back pocket for a long time. Um, yeah. no, I, I initially had the idea for just deflecting, letting the, the laser deflect around. And then I was like, Oh, what if I just change this little couple lines of code that lets it pierce through enemies and just continue on? Yeah, yeah. Everyone in the line was like, oh, this is fun. This is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I hope one of the nice things is like, I have no plans to do multiplayer. I 
do not want to even touch networking code with a, you know, 10 foot pole. Um, as much as I would love, like as cool as that would be not part of the, the plan, but wouldn't make any money off of it anyway. Don't right. Worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the nice thing is I don't have to worry about like balance for a single player is very different from having to balance a loadout between single player and a, and a multiplayer context, you know, that's the theme of the show. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like, I don't have to worry about having this perfectly, this perfect, elegant quake three loadout. That's just like, mm-hmm. you know, immortal and untouchable. I can have weapons that are like, honestly, not that useful, but it's fun. So who cares, you know, mm-hmm. or weapons that are a little OP, but maybe you don't get that much ammo for them, whatever, who cares? You know, something like that. Um, And again, I think some of that goes back to, you know, obviously I think a lot of people do immediately look at it and see Quake, but there's also, you know, I played a lot of shooters growing up, like, and there's a little bit, some stuff I didn't even realize I was pulling from until other people pointed it out. And it's like, yeah, this is just kind of, it's not me trying to remake Quake, it's me trying to kind of recreate I don't know the general like uh, little pieces of all these games that I played, and so like there's right, a little, right. there's a little Turok in there, there's a little Unreal in there, there's a little you know um, Dark Forces in there, you know that kind of stuff. And um, a lot of those games did have weapons later on that had a little more. Like I feel like Quake weapons, like it it tends to do weapons that are just very straightforward. They work immaculately, mm. but they're very like skill based, very like straightforward in the way that they they function. And then some of the other, you know, something like Unreal, where you have like the shot combo and stuff like that. Like, you know, that's also obviously skill based, but it's just like a little more out there or like banking flat cannon shots off of corners and stuff like that. Um, mm. And then Turok, where it's just like, hey, you're going to press this button and half the level is going to explode. I'm probably not going to do that, full disclosure, but um, like, it, I don't know. I do want to have some fun with it. Oh, actually, yeah. Like, you talked about, you know, you, you got to a point where you weren't even really playing the game. You were just like messing around with the mining laser. For me, that was, um, I don't know if you ever played Shogo, uh, mobile armored division. <laughs> that was, it, so that was a, uh, it was monolith. The fear guys mm-hmm. from 97, 98. Anyway, it was like them doing an anime mecha first person shooter. And they had, you had on foot levels that were a little more just like typical FPS. And then you had mech levels where you were, it was still FPS controls, but like, you were in a giant robot running through cities, fighting other mechs. Um, and one of the mech weapons was a spider mine, which is basically like a proximity mine that would attach onto things and then like pulse for a little bit and then explode. Um, yeah. But it was so fun to shoot like people with the spider mines. Cause you were huge and you're shooting these little guys and the spider mines are like as big as they are and then pulsing. And then they just explode into like these insane gibbs everywhere. And like, I would just play around with that. Like I, my memory of Shogo is that not, I don't remember what happens in the story or like anything. I just like to mess around with that one weapon. So if I can, if I can have something in there that's people just want to mess around with, that'll be a win. I think you're really well positioned with effigy. Uh, you discussed a, a bit with sagebrush, how you kind of felt like I, I've got into the walking simulator thing after the initial wave had already kind of mm-hmm. crashed. And with this, like, so retro shooters are in like this, they're in a, a part right now where I feel like we can see the wave coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, out on the horizon but we're not quite there yet so we've had like this initial run uh, i talked about this a bit with uh, dave Oshry, as a matter of fact but mm-hmm. how we we've seen like the the quake likes and the doom likes and 
we're getting to this point now where like the, even the graphics are like, we, we've gone from, you know, Nintendo 64 graphics or, or even previous, like really chunky looking stuff. And now we're moving on to like the PS one style thing. And we're also going from, you know, just pretty basic run and gun type stuff to more advanced movement. We got a bit of that with dusk with, you know, strafe jumping, which was in, absolutely insane in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hakita's case, you know, he's got, you know, the, the butt buster, you know, dashing mm-hmm. devil may cry style movement. And with you, you know, you're, you're putting some double jumping in. You said you had some other ideas with movement and everything, but I had, I did have I a dash. Like, I had a dash move in there that I will probably yeah. end up putting back in because it was fun. Just the way I had it set up. I would ex- I would constantly, it was too yeah. easy to accidentally trigger. So I pulled it out for the demo, but I'll probably put it back in. You're very well positioned, I think. Like, at, mm. so I think that Ultra Kill will eventually come out with mm. New Blood now as its publisher, and that's going to set a precedent. And because th- that's what they do over there at New Blood is set sure. precedents. And I'm really excited to see where you can take this. Yeah, um, me too. You know, like, it, <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird to be talking about it. Like, you know, Sage Rush's, you know, book closed. I can talk about that all day. Effigy. There's a lot of stuff that. You know, the demo was as much for me to just get feedback. In some ways, it was a public play test as, you know, as much as it was, you know, here's what the game will be, because I can guarantee you that when it comes out, it will look pretty different from the demo. Hopefully not too much, because people seem to like it, you know, but, you know, I even in the time since that demo released, you know, it's been a few months, I've... I've reconsidered exactly what I want it to be. And I'm moving away a little bit. And like, there are things in there. I'm overall, I'm very happy with it. And I don't, I'm not going to be like pulling tons of stuff from the game out. But uh, I think early on as part of this experiment, the challenge to myself, it was very much like how much of like that quake feel that quake look, can I remake? And now it's like, you know what? I don't want to be as beholden to quake. Maybe I will do my own thing, you know, right down to like the particle effects are all like little squares, like in, you know, software quake, you know, it's like, well, all right, maybe I can maybe I can juice it up a little bit more. You know, something like yeah, like what Hakita's doing, where yes, it's got that PS one look, but it certainly feels that much juicier than any like. Shoot, if you go back and play shooters on the PS one, they did not have that kind of intense feel. They didn't feel right. good to play. So, uh, what's well, the fun of it? You can recreate the feeling, but you can do a whole lot more with the PC modern era and everything. So that it's like the best of both worlds. It's a perfect blend mm-hmm. of like. Give me the retro thing, but like make it feel, you know, use the tools at your disposal. I think, I think people, people talked about this with like the, the kind of pixel art platformer renaissance of, well, at this point, the last decade. Right. But, um, you know, it was like, or like with Shovel Knight or something, it's not actually slavishly recreating an NES platformer. It's let's recreate what people remember it feeling like. Um, right. Yeah. Don't, I don't want to play a, a, the original. NES. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I, I have trouble with that. Whereas I can jump yeah. back to, you know, the stuff I can jump back to quake or, or, you know, the, these kind of like some of the even less beloved, you know, late nineties shooters and stuff like no problem and have fun with them. Um, but even then you're not playing quake, like it was played in 1996. No, no. You're, playing, you're, you're playing like whatever source port you're using, like all years of, you know, finesse. Right. Bro. Unless you're playing doom using, uh, Comma and period to, to stay as a strafe. You're not playing it the real way. No, yeah. How did I ever do yeah. that? God, there was a time before West. Anyway, um, yeah. So, yeah, effigy. I. It was interesting. I had a very 
kind of, I think, coherent idea early on for what I wanted it to be. Then I got into the weeds of like actually making a functional game for like, again, a year, which, you know, I'm, I work slowly because this is like, I, I, you know, I have to find time in evenings and weekends. Three and jobs. Yeah. My man got three jobs. Um, But, and then over, over that, I think it got away from some of my initial ideas, which were more narratively driven, which were a little more like coherent uh, rather than just like, here's a bunch of enemies and guns and weird levels. Um, which is funny because now I totally see how something like, you know, if you follow like the development of doom or quake or something and how they had these very like strong ideas early on for like story, you know, Tom Hall came in with like, we're going to have, you know, <laughs> like RPG mechanics and like, here's this huge backstory. And then you just end up getting like, I don't know, here's 18 levels of fun or whatever, you know, um, or, 20 whatever levels but now that i've kind of gotten it out there gotten some feedback and stuff um once i put the pin in my other other side project uh which should be pretty that's meant to be a very small thing so that that should be done fairly soon um Mm -hmm. when i get back to really putting uh the time and effort into effigy um i'm gonna be like my primary focus is gonna be like reconsidering what i want it to be um like now that I've seen what people have responded to. Yeah. Yeah. I think the important thing, man, is that you've, you've established uh trust in your audience, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like for, for me anyways, like I, you, you could tell me all day long, like I'm going to reconsider some things about it. And I just trust that you're going to come up with something good. I, I respect you as an artist and as someone that I've like, I think you know better than I do what a good game is to be honest. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think, good. I think sometimes for people in the, like, people on the outside, I don't want to sound super exclusive, but I think people who aren't necessarily like developers and um, can, can think that like, I mean, people think of this about a lot of creative pursuits that it, you know, that you just, we wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and just have like this thing fully formed. And it's like, we just have to make it happen. And it's like, nah, this, you come in and you're like, I don't know. I kind of want it to be like this, but like a little like this, but maybe a little like, I don't know. But what if it felt chunkier? What does that mean? I don't know. Like, I mean, you just, and then you just play around with, for a long, long, long time. Sometimes <laughs> and, you gotta bake several cakes to get the recipe. You're not just gonna like nail it the first time. Like so, yeah. taste that. Oh, everybody works a little differently. For me, I I absolutely needed to have like a couple of levels and weapons and enemies to run around and shoot before I could go. Okay, now I know what I want this to be, or more yeah. more what I want this to be, and I have a better idea now than I did a few months ago. Even so, I'm excited. Um, you know, you talked about trying to hit the like that there being a wave of shooters. I'm hoping um I'm hoping that this doesn't take so long that I miss the wave, you know. Um but yeah, I, I've been considering I've been mulling over doing some sort of like episodic release, kind of like akin to dusk or something where you have it and you release it in kind of thirds. Yeah. Um I think it works well. This it would be a little bit harder here for like with an interconnected world. How do you do like a inter- interconnected world? Well now you can now yeah. here's this chunk so uh but i i have some plans for that and i think i can make it work pretty well and i think that would allow people to play something that you could reasonably call final or finished uh sometime in the, the, the next you know year year and a half or two years or something rather than four or five years or something like that but do you, do you feel at this point do you want to continue to just kind of have this as a complete solo project or are you shopping around uh with different studios anything along those lines um i mean i would absolutely love to work with a you know um a publisher or you know something um again i i don't have a 
ton, you know, Sagebrush did okay, but not like where I'm like, all right, now I can throw the, you know, the money at, oh, right. This is an audio podcast. So you can't see me making it rain. Um, <laughs> but um, I can't really, I have a little bit of a budget this time, but I, I, you know, not something where I can just like bring out a ton of people, which bums me out. I would love to be able to do that. Um, but no, I, I, I've, I've talked to a few people, um, you know, new blood is aware of it uh, and yeah. they like it. Um, but they're also incredibly busy and uh, you know, I'm not going to. That's what I told Haki. I need to have him back on the show. I feel like he doesn't fully appreciate what he's done here. Getting, you know, getting this type of game on that platform. Mm-hmm. So at the very least, man, high tide raises all ships and you know, whatever happens happens. I think this is going to be really cool. But yeah, no, I mean, if, if it's something that I have to slowly painstakingly put together yeah. for years by myself, I'll do it. Um, you know, I've, at this point, the momentum is, is, is there that I'm going to keep, I'm going to see it through, but Hey man, if you want, if someone out there wants to give me some money, that'd be cool. No, I mean, you know, I would, I would love to be able yeah. to do this, you know, devote more time to this. The last couple of years, like getting into game development and kind of, you know, having, having people like stuff I made has been absolutely super fulfilling. And like the community is so cool. And I don't know. It, I'm just really, really thrilled to be a part of it. Um, and I just want to, I just want to keep that going. You know? Right on, man. Well, that's all I got for you, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you for, this has been one of the coolest conversations I've had in a while where it's not just about games. We got into like the weeds on Colts and everything. And <laughs> just, you're, you're a really cool person, dude. I, I look forward to having you back on when we get a little bit more info on Effigy or anything else that you want to, you just want to come chat sometime. Sure. The, the show is always open to you. Thank you. No, I, it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. It's still strange to me that I'm in a place where people would go like, hey, would you like to be on my podcast to talk about things? I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll talk forever. Um, yeah, no, it's that's the fun thing about it, though, is getting to meet and talk with different types of people. And I don't care. I, I've said this many times, like I will have the bigger guests on and that means something to me. But I want those to be a way of giving back to the people who actually need the exposure. Like mm-hmm. I'm not doing Dave Oshry any uh, favors by having him on the show, right? you know, but he's doing me and you a big favor by being on the show. Hopefully the, people like him, people see that hit the subscribe button and then they end up listening to this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so that's my goal. I've had a similar experience, just like getting to know more developers, you know, that I used mm-hmm. to just kind of follow from afar on Twitter and be like, that's cool. And now, you know, we know each other more or less. And it's like, but, and yeah, there's a little twinge of like, Oh, so-and-so like liked my tweet. That's really cool. But it's also just as much fun to just chat with other people who, you know, are just making these little passion projects and just, they're the most interesting ones. Right. You know, people who have the coolest ideas. Uh, Yeah. It's been, it's been really awesome to meet. uh, I would say like-minded people who, you know, just want to make cool shit. real quick want to say some uh thank yous to the folks who support the show so specifically dots moose paul zach alexander lashaka brad night owl tones jeffrey larissa nabe steve nvz catman Samiko, chibi sniper donkey vj tengen harukent 
Bran Flakes, Maleki Terrell, and new addition to the team, Red Eyes, Green Dragon. You are all greatly appreciated. It is uh, people like you who keep this show uh, alive, and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. And that's not even the full list of people. That's just the people who like are giving through sources like Patreon, PayPal, becoming Nitro subscribers in our Discord, just generally like being awesome and helping out. I thank you, and the Drowned God Kathala thanks you very much. It is uh, absolutely a pleasure to know that people like you guys are out there who really, really do care. If you're out there listening and you would like to support The Keep, remember it is a listener-supported podcast. We could not do this without you. We bring you an ad-free show, so that means that essentially all we do is just ask that you uh, show a little support. The best way that you can support, number one, is to just share the show. Go on your social media or Reddit or wherever, whatever it is that you do, and share it with your friends Tell people you know that they should like this show and subscribe to it. Um, and also, if you really just want to like go the extra mile, head over to the support page at endthekeep.com for several different ways to show your love for the show. We appreciate everything we get. want to say a big thank you to Nate, obviously, for being on the show, and to David Szymanski and all the other folks over at New Blood, uh, just you know for getting talked about so much in this episode uh we obviously love the fuck out of you guys and uh anybody out there you know just want to let you know i know it's rough times if you're struggling we're here for you the keep will continue to provide uh, as much excellent content as we can so stay tuned see you next week and till next time stay in the keep